Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. My name is Scott, and I'm the host. Today's very special episode is called, Do the Scriptures Have Inherent Moral Authority? With Dan McClellan. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. This is a very special one that I'm so excited about. I've got a guest that I'm going to bring on that I have been looking forward to chatting with for a very long time. Let me give a little bit of his background and then we'll bring him out of the green room. Dan McClellan has a Master's of Jewish Studies from the University of Oxford, Master's of Biblical Studies from Trinity Western University, Doctor of Theology and Religion from the University of Exeter. In his professional career, he worked for the last decade in scripture translation for the LDS Church. Dan McClellan is also known for his um, TikTok channel and his YouTube page. He is a biblical scholar that has a wide audience of both believers and non-believers. So without further ado, Dan, thank you so much for coming on to Ramiumptum Ruminations. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. When I bring on a guest, I'll typically allow them to give as much or as little of their background as possible. Okay. Sometimes they like to talk about their upbringing within the LDS church. Mm -hmm. If that's not something you want to talk about, that's totally fine. You can say as much or as little about yourself before we jump into things. Okay. Uh, so I'm actually an adult convert to the church. I wasn't raised in the LDS church. I was baptized when I was- I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, I, uh, that's been kind of a consistent uh, response to uh, when people find that out. I was baptized when I was 20 years old in Plano, Texas on uh, September 9th, 2000. And then uh, a year and a day later, I sent in my mission papers. So that would be September 10th, 2001. And then the next day, the whole world changed. And wow. uh, you know, I wasn't even sure I was going to be able to serve a mission, but I ended up being called to Uruguay, went and served a mission in Uruguay. I also served in South America. Okay. In Chile. In Chile? Okay. I had, there was, we had uh, an elder from Chile. Uh, well, we had a few, but uh, one that I knew quite well, who was, um, who was a great guy. Um, and, uh, but it wasn't quite Castellano, a little bit different Spanish in Chile. <laughs> no, not quite. A little different. Yeah. <laughs> they cut off most of their S's and their D's. Their, their yeah, yeah. accent is a little bit harder to learn. At least I thought it was. He used to say, Cubo all the time. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was in that year between getting baptized and going on a mission that I realized I was kind of behind everybody else I would be serving alongside in terms of scripture study. So I spent that year reading the scriptures for like an hour, hour and a half every single day. I wanted to get through the whole standard works um, so that I was a little better situated to, to run with everybody else on, on the mission. And then I got to the mission and realized, no, I'm already well ahead of everybody else here. <laughs> um, not everybody, but most of the people here. Um, and, uh, and I fell in love with reading the Bible on my mission. And I thought, gosh, I would really like to be able to carry this on, uh, in school after I get home. Now I had already been kicked out of one university in 1998, the university of Colorado invited me not to return for, uh, <laughs> the second semester after I spent, um, all but the first two weeks, uh, smoking a little too much pot, 
drinking a little too much SoCo, going to a few too few classes, getting in too many fights. Um, there, um, you know, there was some, uh, some drug use as well that, uh, that got in the way of things. So basically I was there to do what, uh, what I don't know if you watch South Park, but there's a line I still remember from South Park where the chef says, there's a time and a place for everything. It's called college. (laughs) And I really ran with that at the University of Northern Colorado. And they said, you know what? College isn't for you. So um, so when I got home from my mission, I had a muscular 0.29 GPA. Uh, but I hoped that maybe BYU would be merciful to a convert return missionary. And they were not. They laughed at me the first time around. Oh, no. but, um, <laughs> but uh I went to a local community college. Uh, at the time, it was Collin County Community College. Now I believe it goes by just Collin College. Uh, and I did a, uh, I did a semester. I learned how to study as a missionary and I uh, got a 4.0. I went to BYU. I, I spent a summer in Provo doing their visiting student summer semester. And, uh, and then I tested out a bunch of Spanish classes and, and basically waltzed in the back door of BYU as a transfer student. <laughs> and they have since locked and bolted that door. But, um, <laughs> and I, I, uh, discovered I could study ancient Near Eastern studies. I could um, direct myself towards making the study of the scriptures a career. And so I did that, went away to, uh, to England for another degree, then to Canada for another. Uh, and then I got, uh, this job, uh, working in scripture translation as a scripture translation supervisor kind of fell in my lap. Uh, and, uh, that was a phenomenal career at, uh, enabled me to do a PhD, a a distance PhD with the University of Exeter, enabled me to work with my my specialization uh, in that career for just over a decade. And I'd been, it was always a bridge to try to allow, to allow me to get back into academia. And um, the uh, biblical studies is not a very robust field right now. It's, the jobs are few and far between. So, uh, I have applied to a number of positions and, and never got so much as an interview uh, for a handful of reasons. But when I got on TikTok, initially it was because I saw people cross-posting TikTok videos on Facebook, on Instagram, and they were talking about religious studies, biblical studies, and stuff like that. And I just initially was kind of like, who's in charge over there? And uh, and so I, I got an account to go lurk for a little bit and and see what things were like. And, you know, there were a lot of a lot of different groups on TikTok. There were a lot of very well-meaning people who were um, hobbyists, who were students, who were trying to get into more serious study of the Bible. And I thought, well, maybe as a credentialed scholar, I can kind of come in and, and call balls and strikes to some degree and, and share my perspective. And uh, to my surprise, it was, uh, there was uh, an audience for this. There was a lot of interest in someone who could um, say, well, these are the data and this is what they indicate, whether uh, you know, it agrees with my own personal identity politics or does not. That was surprising, but that opened uh, avenues for me and uh, allowed me to uh, to pivot into doing public scholarship full time, which is what I'm doing now since January. I, I left that position and I teach my online courses and uh, am engaged in public scholarship. I want to be a resource to the general public to help them 
have better access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and, um, as usual, combat the spread of misinformation. So, I'd be curious to know what some of the projects or some of the, the duties working for the LDS Church and a follow up with that, were you were you employed by the church or by through BYU? So I was employed uh, employed at church headquarters. BYU is a separate entity. In fact, it was rather complicated to um, uh, if I wanted to coordinate with students or or faculty down at BYU on a project. Uh, it was rather difficult to uh, to do so. It's kind of a, an Athens and Jerusalem kind of uh, <laughs> a dichotomy there. If uh, uh, if you're familiar with that with that phrase, but um, I, I worked on a, a handful of projects. Some are still in the works. Some have been published for a while. Uh, I worked with the uh, a number of languages from the Pacific. Uh, Kiribati is a, a language I, I finalized their triple combination of the scriptures. There's a language called Bishlama. Uh, that I finalized their triple combination of the scriptures. Uh, Pohnpeian is a phenomenal language uh, spoken on Pohnpei, the capital of the Federated States of Micronesia. And there, uh, I worked on that project through the completion of the uh, the Book of Mormon. Uh, when I, I left, I was working on, uh, well, I worked on the Portuguese translation of the Bible, which was published in 2015. It was a, a revision of a pre-existing translation. For use within the LDS Church? Yeah, so that's a church edition of the Bible. So in 2009, they published a Spanish. In 2015, they published the Portuguese. When we both served missions, the the version that we were using was La Reina Valera. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wasn't aware that the church had translated the Spanish or at least made revisions to that. Were you part of those projects or was that something that... Uh, not the Spanish. That was before I showed up. But I that's what I that's what I was doing for the Portuguese. So the idea is take a public domain edition of the Bible and then uh, revise and update the language and then translate our study helps and things like that. Um, and this is all public knowledge. There have been some uh, some articles published in, for instance, the Liahona uh, that have talked about the scripture translation process. And then there um, there currently. Uh, I was working on the uh, Italian and the French uh, church edition of the Bible as well, and then a Greek triple combination of the scriptures and, and a handful of others. Um, so I, I got to work on a lot of different projects. Some of the languages I was more familiar with, some of the languages I was less familiar with, some of the languages I'd never even heard of. How many languages can you speak then? Uh, speak? Uh, or, or read and understand? Barely one. <laughs> no, I'm going to contest you on that one. You are can, very articulate. So, <laughs> uh, well, I, I appreciate that. A lot of people would disagree with you, um, <laughs> but I can. Uh, I, I do pretty well in Spanish. I can understand a lot of what's going on in uh, Portuguese and Italian and, and French. Obviously, I I took German all through high school, so um, I'm still have some facility with that. My wife is a lot better than me. She served her mission in uh, Germany and Austria, um, and. But uh, I can read a lot more than I can uh, I can talk, and I I don't really speak much in any of those languages. But uh, I can understand quite a bit of modern Greek. I can read ancient Hebrew, ancient Greek, uh, Aramaic, some Syriac, Ugaritic. I wish I could uh, say Akkadian, but uh, I never really focus much on on Akkadian, so my Akkadian is awful. So for the listeners, can we place some of those languages geographically? Ugaritic, ancient Canaan? Uh, yeah. So 
Ugaritic is uh, is a Canaanite language, a Northwest Semitic language that was used in uh, the city state of Ugarit, which is in Syria, just off the coast. Uh, and that language was operative probably from around the 15th century down to about 1200 BCE when the Sea People's invasions, or, or whatever you want to uh, call that, uh, that cultural collapse occurred, and the city was destroyed, and it wasn't discovered again until 1927. A farmer uh, hit with his plow uh, what turned out to be a sarcophagus, and um, we've uncovered this whole city and discovered this language, and we were able to decipher it. And it's a Northwest Semitic language, very closely related to Hebrew. Um, and yeah, that's a that's a great one. Uh, but Aramaic, Hebrew, Ancient Greek, Syriac, those are all around that area from uh, later periods. Two more questions before we jump into the the bulk of what I'd like to discuss with you. Neither of these are academic. I've always noticed that you're wearing graphic novel t-shirts, comic book heroes, that sort of thing. Frequently. To, today, I'm wearing some of my own merch, so um, shamelessly. <laughs> <laughs> Data over dogma. It's, yep. it's a great little slogan. I love it. Do you have a favorite superhero or favorite graphic novel? and perhaps a favorite run of that character in the comics? Uh, I really enjoy Wolverine. Uh, I Anything, any Wolverine comic, I will pick up and I will enjoy. I got into comics in the early 90s. I think, I can't remember if it was 1992 or 1993. One of those years, the All-Star Game was in Baltimore. I was living uh, in a place called Gaithersburg, Maryland. And uh, my friend and I, we went up to uh, the All-Star Fan Fest, which is the big... Uh, uh, convention party thing they have the week of the all-star game. And I picked up, uh, X-Men number one of the Jim Lee run. And that was my introduction into comics. And so Jim Lee's run on, on, uh, X-Men was formative for me, but I think the, the one where I got into it and then was like, I need to get all the back issues. I need to get, <laughs> I need to fill in every gap here. Uh, that would have been the death and life of Superman. Uh, story across. So that's across four different books. And, uh, you know, I had, uh, and then there are some little one-offs here and there that kind of tie in that I had to go uh, find. And so I had, I had that whole thing nailed down. I, e I even had the novel that was, uh, that was published. Yeah. They'll do like an omnibus of them and, and compile the whole thing. Well, th this was actual, yeah, this wasn't like a, um, a big graphic novel. It was an actual novel, no pictures or anything. Oh, interesting. That, um, I forget who wrote it. One of the writers, um, just decided they were going to turn the whole thing into a novel. Um, so yeah, that was a, um, that was a, a great book. So, so that was something that was formative for me. Uh, and then in, in high school, I got into, uh, like image comics. I really enjoyed spawn, uh, anything with Todd McFarlane or Greg Capullo. I'm a big fan of, uh, those, I wanted to be a comic book artist when I was growing up. And so I modeled, uh, my own work on, on them, on Greg Capullo, on, on Todd McFarlane, uh, X-Men with Joe Matarera. I thought he was phenomenal. Uh, loved his artwork, the Miles Morales run with Sarah Pacelli, um, which I think was the ultimate Spider-Man. I really enjoyed that one. I, I love her interpretation of Venom. 
Uh, I think that's probably one of my favorites. And, um, you know, there, there are a handful of, of comics I got into really deeply for a while and then got bored of like Gen 13. I don't know if you recall that one I'm from not familiar back in the nineties. That That's, I don't know what happened to that one. That was fun for a bit, but I think I, uh, I, uh, I outgrew that pretty quickly. Witchblade was a fun one. I think I had like the, oh, I remember reading some Witchblade. I, mean, I think they did a show of that one too, for a minute. Did they? <laughs> I, I, did, I like, vaguely the, recall. But I could be wrong. I, I did like the first first five or so issues of that. Mark Silvestri, I thought was a really great artist. Um, but uh, oh gosh, Savage Dragon. I don't know if you remember Savage Dragon. That was I do remember it green with like a mohawk on his head. Yeah, 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 like a Finn mohawk. Yeah, thing. Finn Eric, mohawk. Mm-hmm. Eric Larson. I thought that was a that was a great comic. Um, and then I I've been out of the game for such a long time. And then when my oldest daughter. Uh, turned 10, I was like, let's go to a comic book store. Let's see if you see if you can get into this stuff. And so I picked up and got into Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur to try to um to try to uh, get her into it. Yeah, to bond with your daughter a little bit and get her into it. So I enjoyed that and they just came out with a cartoon on that. Uh, oh, cool. so there's a there's a Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur series, which um which has been fun. I think the art is is very fun, very cool, and they've got great they've got great celebrity voices and everything on there. Uh, their guest stars are good. So, um, but yeah, gosh, I, I wish I had the time to do more recreational, uh, comic book reading. I totally get that. Yeah. Last question before we jump into this, your tagline that you use on TikTok and you use it regularly is mm -hmm. all right, let's see it. How did you come up with that? Cause it is, <laughs> it is so simple. And it's perfect for, <laughs> for what you're trying to do. Yeah. It doesn't convey like you're going to be wrong or you're going to be right. It's just like, all right, <laughs> let's see. It. It's just so perfectly worded. How did you come up with it? It was, it was pretty organic. This, this was just something that I, I think probably over the course of a few months, maybe a dozen videos or so, I just happened to post a little clip and then my my next thing was, all right, let's see it. And, um, and so it was just kind of natural. And, and initially it was, okay, let's see it. All right, let's hear it. Uh, okay, let's hear it. I, there were a bunch of variations. And then I started seeing people, um, saying that back to me. And, um, <laughs> and so I, I, I thought like, you know, my, my motto, my logo is, uh, is, uh, or slogan is data over dogma. And then people started saying, all right, let's see it back to me. And I was like, okay, so that's, I guess I got to use that now. That's a bit of a catchphrase. Um, and so now I've standardized it. It's always, all right, let's see it. Um, and then I had a bunch of people saying, you need to put that on a shirt. And so I tried that. I, I, experimented with some designs and it was creepy i can imagine i don't think that i don't <laughs> yeah, think <laughs> that translates well to a t-shirt no, or just no. like a still image instead of <laughs> yeah so at first I, I did some um like i'm an artist so i did some drawings of me with you know like a like a, a skeptical look on my face and i would look at it and be like yeah that's very creepy <laughs> so um and so i i had to I went to just text. So there is a there is a shirt out there you can get that says in quotation marks, all right, let's see it. And then under that, it says data over dogma, uh, just to try to contextualize things a little bit. Um, but I don't uh, I don't uh, like promote that very much just because I I am a little uncomfortable with, <laughs> with uh, what with the potential concerns there. So. Um, so, yeah, that one's not as popular. 
So you're working on a new project that's going to release the same week that this episode releases. Hopefully, yeah. Yeah, so what is this that you're working on and how can we help you get the word out? So this is the Data Over Dogma podcast that a friend of mine, Dan Beecher, and I are uh, starting up. He introduced himself to me way back when I first started uh, on on TikTok. And uh, so he's taking care of a lot of the technical side of stuff. And it's basically the same thing that I do on my my channel. It's an attempt to try to help make the academic study of the Bible and religion more accessible to the general public and also combat the spread of misinformation. So we do segments where we have interviews uh, with guests. We do segments where uh, he does one, he kind of runs one uh, called chapter and verse well he, where he'll walk through a passage or a, or a story and then ask questions or I'll interrupt him and say hey here's this th- cool thing here and then I've got a segment that I call what's that mean um, and that's where I talk about concepts frameworks words that uh, people will run into in uh, biblical studies uh, today we recorded an episode and I talked about univocality a word that I'm fond of using on my channel um, so we're looking forward to uh, to getting the first episodes out there. We've already got four, five episodes recorded. By the time your show airs, it'll probably be uh, at least one or two more. So we will, uh, yeah, we'll definitely be promoting that hard as <laughs> we have things ready. So you guys doing a, a weekly episode release schedule? Yeah. And where can my listeners find this? So uh, we will have it on all the major uh, podcast hosting platforms. I still don't know what all of those are because I'm still not in the deep in the podcast game. I'm, I'm kind of the, uh, uh, I just show up and, and, uh, kind of spew my nonsense and he takes care of the technical side of stuff, but there is a, uh, there will be a, a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash data over dogma pod, uh, data over dogma pod.com will be our website. There's nothing there yet because I have yet to, uh, figure out how to do that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, we will be, we also have a, a presence on, uh, Twitter. There's data underscore over underscore dogmas, our Twitter account. We're on Facebook data over dogma podcast. And so we'll be, we'll make sure that if, uh, somebody wants to access our podcast, they will be able to, uh, to a fault. So all the listeners out there, go make sure you subscribe to data over dogma <laughs> podcast and be there for the two Dan's, uh, yep. Dan McClellan, Dan Beecher over there from Data Over Dogma podcast. Let's transition a little bit and discuss what uh, what I brought you on to, uh, to the podcast to chat about. Yeah. What I wanted to talk about, we can focus more on the, the Old Testament, New Testament, if that's more comfortable, but I'd, I'd be interested in some of your thoughts on um, the LDS scriptures as well on this. But what I want to talk about is how we as readers come to the text and negotiate meaning and negotiate like a moral authority within the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Many of us, and I'll I'll just, I'll be quick about this, but as I was preparing for my mission, similar to you, I made sure to read the entire canon of LDS scriptures. I sat down, I I read the Book of Mormon, and then, then to the Doctrine and Covenants. I was intimidated by the Old Testament, so I went to the New Testament first, and then I went to the Old Testament, and I got to the mission field, and I found that so few of my companions had actually read even the full Book of Mormon. And so mm-hmm. I, I kind of felt like an outlier for most of my companions. But in my time reading those scriptures, 
I made these lists and um, I had sticky notes and, and notepads with um, a list of a topic. So if I ran into um, a Jehovah's Witness or if I talked to a, a Catholic person or you know, whoever it was, I had a list of scriptures ready to fight and to be ready to say, here's why your beliefs are wrong and here's why my beliefs are right. And <laughs> they were these lists of scriptures, 100% out of context, but I was ready to be a missionary and use these scriptures to, to prove that my beliefs were the correct beliefs. Right. And then, you know, inevitably I'd come to these conversations, whoever it was that I was talking to, they'd have their own set of scriptures, their own, their own verses and passages also cherry picked from all throughout the, the scriptures to say, here's why what I say is correct. And here's why, you know, what you're saying is also incorrect. How is that possible within the scriptures? Well, the, the first thing I'll, I'll say is that texts don't really have any inherent meaning. When we go to the Bible, there is not one meaning laying there waiting for us to excavate it, to say, aha, we found it. The, the texts mean whatever we understand them to mean. And so we come to the text with our own experiences with the language we're reading it in. We come to the text with our own understanding of the relationships that have been agreed upon between given linguistic expressions and given semantic content. And we have a bunch of interpretive lenses that our intuitive cognition is going to impose upon that text in order to allow it to make meaning in a way that helps us. And uh, we can find help in these texts in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it has to do with making ourselves feel better about our, excuse me, ourselves and our own uh, decisions and our own moral outlooks or the groups that we're a part of. Uh, sometimes it's about trying to structure power in our favor. So if there's a passage that can be interpreted in a way that it functions as a proof text uh, in our favor and against another group towards which we are antagonistic, intuitively, that's going to feel a lot more attractive to us. So it's going to make a lot more sense to us that way. And so the problem is every reader of the Bible has a vastly different repertoire of experiences and understandings of those relationships and interpretive frameworks that they have accumulated over a lifetime of experience with texts and with the Bible. And so there are literally as many different readings as there are readers of the text, because every reader is generating the meaning in their mind. Now, a lot of them concentrate around readings that serve the interests of groups, particularly those groups with strong social frameworks, and particularly those with strong authoritative social frameworks. So we read a text and maybe it may, doesn't make sense to us a given way, but our group leadership or the group consensus is that it needs to mean this. And so because our intuitive cognition also wants us to maintain good standing in the groups that are important to us and advance our standing within the groups that are important to us, our intuitive cognition is going to nudge us in the direction of accepting readings that will help us do that. And so the reality is we're all creating our own meanings based on what our brains <laughs> want to do to try to ensure that we survive and progress as individuals and as groups. And so, uh, yeah, we, it may make total sense to us to read a passage a given way and zero sense to somebody sitting across the table from us to read it the same way. And neither is really right or wrong. Um, 
it's very, very difficult to try to shed all of those interpretive lenses and then try to replace them with the interpretive lenses that would have governed the composition of these texts anciently. The best we can hope to do is try to generate some approximation of what we imagine their interpretive lenses would have been like to try to say, it seems likely that they probably wrote the text to be understood this way. Okay. So you're making a distinction here, and I just want to make sure that uh, that the listeners are clear. You're saying that the negotiated meaning that a, a reader today is reading the text and what they're taking away from it isn't necessarily the intended meaning that the composer or writer of the text actually meant. Most of the time, it's not. Yeah. How can we as lay people, if you will, come to these scriptures and recognize what's happening within our own brains as we're reading these passages? Well, I I think one thing that I try to do is when I'm reading and an interpretation comes to mind, if that interpretation makes me feel good about a given social identity or a given ideology or a given dogma, I think that's probably the influence of that ideology or that dogma or that social identity. When we, scholars who dedicate their lives to trying to understand these texts as close as we can get to how they were originally uh, intended to be used or how they were um, circulated within their original audiences, the meanings that are generated frequently don't sound very meaningful to us. They're not interesting. They're not meaningful. They're not relevant. They're certainly not going to help us win arguments on the internet. Um, And so... (laughs) That's that's a little hard for a lot of people to accept. Like people are like, oh, I've, th- this passage has always been such a mystery to me, and I want to know what the real meaning. And it's like, it's really nothing special. It's something that's totally irrelevant to us today. That's not exciting for a lot of people. And so, I would say the less exciting a reading is, the prob- probably the better <laughs> it is. Um, it's it's not the case that the people who wrote the Bible were engaged in the exact same uh, identity politics that we are today. Uh, but the the better we understand what was going on back then, hopefully the better we'll be able to to question our own intuitions about these texts and to say, well, that wouldn't have made much sense to someone writing in the 6th or the 7th century BCE with all this going on around them. It probably would have made much more sense if it meant X, Y, or Z. Um, And uh, often that's not something that can be forced into service in our uh, online debates or in uh, the arguments that we have over the Thanksgiving table with with our family members. So um, it's not as as exciting, but uh, that helps us understand it better. And for folks who are approaching the text devotionally, who want to try to get something out of it um, on that end, I would say use what scholars think is the most likely intended meaning as a platform, as a, as a foundation for building uh, up some kind of interpretation that is meaningful for you. Because I think most people who approach the text devotionally understand it to be in some sense inspired, in some sense more a conduit for inspiration for divine um, information than it is some kind of constitution that doesn't change and always will mean one and only one thing for all of time. Um, and so use it as as a dynamic tool for 
thinking differently about the situations that you're in, for thinking a little differently about uh, the relationships that are challenging you, for thinking a little differently about your relationship with the divine. So if you're pr- approaching it devotionally, I would say it can still be a very dynamic tool. Uh, but a lot of times our concern is not really for progressing or or making it a dynamic tool. A lot of times our priority is just winning an argument or our priority is just feeling like our group is the best or feeling like we have it right and everybody else has it wrong. And that's that's not a helpful way to <laughs> to spread understanding of the Bible. If our interpretations or, or these lenses that we're bringing to the to the readings are where it's getting the meaning that we're typically understanding or what maybe mainstream Christianity is going to say this text means, what moral authority actually exists within the text? And if there is one, what is it? And if not, what implications does that have on the text? Uh, I would say the authority is whatever... A group agrees the authority is, um, and and something I bring up frequently uh, with this is something that uh, I think a long time ago on on my TikTok channel somebody asked me what the most complex fairy tale was, and it was a dig at the Bible, but I responded probably corporations, <laughs> and and then I went on to explain that corporations are legal fictions; they only exist to the degree that we agree that they exist. And there's so much in the world around us that only exists to the degree that we agree it exists. The United States of America only exists to the degree that we all agree it exists. And you can come up with authority figures and military forces and police that enforce the agreement, but they don't actually create this reality. It's just an agreement. And similarly, the authority of the text is an agreement. All these different groups have different ideas about the authority of the text anyway. And it's really just... What is the agreement that is authoritative within the social identities that are important to you? And that's that's going to change from time to time, from place to place. And so the text itself has no inherent meaning. And so I would argue additionally has no inherent authority. That doesn't mean that we can't agree on some kind of authority, but it's I would suggest that it doesn't go beyond that agreement. Which is not that exciting. It's not. It doesn't make things very meaningful. But that's what happens when you when you put data over dogma. Sometimes it's boring. <laughs> no, I think it's fascinating because if we can if we can as a society maybe um, recognize that these moral authorities are something that we're imposing upon the text or imposing upon our our culture, our nation, what have you. How would that influence the way that we come to the table for other people that read it differently than us if we recognize? that the meaning that we bring to the table is also us imposing that meaning on the text. Yeah, I, I, I think that kind of humility before the text would go a long way to resolving a lot of the tensions, a lot of the conflicts, because uh, none of us has any kind of corner on the truth of what's going on in the text. We're all doing our best. And if we could acknowledge that this group over here is also doing their best, they just have different experiences, different histories, different social identities. Uh, hopefully it would mean a lot more compassion, a lot more empathy, a lot more cooperation. And and in the end, uh, within the cognitive science of religion, uh, most the consensus view is that religion as a as a conceptual package, which is also something that doesn't really exist, um, but only insofar as we agree that it exists, 
is something that has um, persevered for so long because it generates cooperation. And so to try to maximize cooperation, I think, is driving at precisely what drives religion. If I'm not mistaken, it was in the book Sapiens by Noah Yuval Harari, where he talked about expanding societies needing some sort of cooperative understanding of the world in order to function cohesively when it's grown beyond the capacity to truly know someone on a personal level in within the organization. So that's and that's and that's a very widespread uh, theory in Sapiens. That's just one iteration of it. But uh, this is discussed quite a bit in the Cognitive Science of Religion. And there's a great book by Ara Norenstein called Big Gods, which talks about this as well. But yeah, once you get a social group that is bigger than a kinship unit, once you get to the point where you can count on can running into people you have to cooperate with on a daily basis who you will not know personally. Um, and, and Dunbar's number, kind of a, probably an outdated number that, uh, a guy named Dunbar came up with was 150 people. That's about the ceiling that you could expect people to keep track of. Once you get into groups larger than that, you've got to have some kind of mechanism for knowing who you can trust and who you can't. And so ritual is one way that we develop a way to test the fidelity of other people. So, um, and this, you know, we still see this all the time today. Shaking somebody's hand is something that we do. We have no idea why we do it. It's just what you do. <laughs> but ultimately what it comes down to is a tiny little gesture to show I'm going to participate in this interaction in a way that communicates that I am a, a faithful member of this social identity and I can do what is expected of me. Uh, and so, yeah, that that's very, very deeply embedded in our um, in our evolved consciousness, uh, and it extends well beyond religion into, like I said, shaking hands. A lot of the things that we do every single day to show other people that we're, we're we are competent adult members of this society. That's that's kind of those are the building blocks of what we now relate label religion, but also what we label society. I'm going to steer back a little bit to the subject that we were discussing a moment ago. Do you have any idea if the original composers of these texts, and we're going to set aside the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants, um, focusing on the Old Testament, New Testament, and then I do have maybe one or two questions about those, um, about the LDS scriptures, but would the original composers of these texts have anticipated the way that we use the scriptures today? Not even remotely. Um, now there's, there are shades of gray here, but for the most part, these composers were people who are writing these texts in order to serve far more direct and pressing social concerns. Many of them having to do with structuring power in favor of a given, uh, cultic authority or state authority or non-state authority. Some of the prophetic literature is, is adamantly um, opposed to monarchy and the kingship and stuff like that. And then when we get into the New Testament, most of these texts are, are trying to tell stories in order to be able to uh, standardize and transmit the words of Jesus uh, as well as uh, curate what's going on in the congregations that have been set up. And so that they would all be gathered together and turned into what would later be understood as a single book that was understood to be perfectly consistent, perfectly univocal, meaning it all speaks with the same unified and consistent voice. And 
inerrant. Uh, those ideas would be totally alien to the people who wrote those texts. Now, they would be probably pretty proud and probably pretty happy to see that. And, but at the same time, there's a part of them that would be horrified that people have been so misled about what's going on with the texts that they wrote. Um, and there are also layers and layers of editors and redactors that have worked on these texts. So the person, the first person to put pen to paper to write any of the words that now occur in the book of Genesis wouldn't even recognize the book of Genesis. They would be like, well, I was responsible for a handful of words over here and a handful of words over there. I don't know where the rest of my story went. I don't know what, what uh, got put in its place. So there's a lot of that going on as well. One of the interesting distinctions, and within the LDS faith, they talk about this, but the the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants were written for our time, is kind of the phrase, or, or we are the intended target audience. And that is distinct from the Old Testament, New Testament, because those were written for their time for the audience that was contemporary with them. The question isn't, you know, who composed the Book of Mormon or, or, or that sort of thing. The production was completed in the 1830s, released to the public, given to the people in the 1830s. But we still use that same text today. Are we also no longer the intended audience of the production of the Book of Mormon as it was presented by Joseph Smith? I would say once the terminology and once the conceptual frameworks that are, are were guiding that text are no longer easily understood, we are no longer the target audience. And a good example of that is a paper I published on uh, 2 Nephi 25, 23. We know that we are saved by grace after all we can do. I went in and I looked at the use of that phrase in literature in the English language between, I think like 1740 and 1840 or something like that. I looked at a whole century of literature and that phrase was used a ton particularly in discussions about grace. And it was always used to mean not we are saved by grace once we've done everything that we can do, but always to mean we're saved by grace despite everything we can do, all we can do. And so that was a, a usage that fell out of uh, the public consciousness. We lost that sense of the text, and which means we reinterpreted it and we interpreted it in a way different from what was intended. And so I, and I, uh, it's a statement that I've made in print, in, for instance, in that paper on 2 Nephi 25-23, but we need to understand the text to be operating on the level of 1830 English. That's not saying anything about its ultimate origins. It's just saying that if it is written for our day, and given the, the state of the text, if we want to understand it, we have to understand it as something written for uh, an 1830s uh English, specifically American target audience. And, and yeah, we, we misunderstand it all the time because that's not, you know, we have not been a part of that target audience for generations. So yeah, I, I, I think we need to, uh, that's an example where we need to go do the work, put in the reps of trying to understand better how literature worked, uh, almost 200 years ago in order to best understand what's going on in the text. Because you were working in scripture translation. Is this something that was discussed in the headquarters of making an updated version of common English, if you will, that we're speaking today to make it better understood by the general public? Or is that not something that was being discussed? I, I've, I've seen people discuss that um, all over the church, uh, not, not in church headquarters, outside of church headquarters and all over. It's not something that I think, in my opinion, 
anyone would take seriously <laughs> uh, in church headquarters because yeah, I didn't either. I was just curious. Yeah, it it's uh, it strikes me as a bridge too far. I mean, at at some point, it will become an inevitability, just as the English language changes and it becomes something that cannot be easily grasped. But I am not aware of any such uh, intentions. <laughs> Unfortunately, I wish I were, but I'm, I'm not. Well, and that's that brings up an interesting, and maybe we'll leave have this be the final question that I ask you because I know we're uh, we're getting short on the time that that I've got you for. With that understanding that that yes, in, the English language has drifted and changed over the course of the two hundred years since yeah. the whether the composition or translation. That's unimportant to me with this with this question. Since we know that the language has shifted, and the meaning, the intended meaning, might be lost on a modern reader, how is that something that we could? A believer or someone that's nuanced in their faith, how can they go to their to their scriptures and capture the meaning that's intended within the text? I, I think that requires a very careful, close reading. I think it requires um, accessing other resources using things like uh, the. Not a lot of people have access to the online. Uh, the OED, the um, Oxford English Dictionary, which is available online, that is a phenomenal resource for understanding usage in given time periods. Uh, everybody can access the 1828 Webster's Dictionary if they want to try to understand better word usage using Google. Uh, using there, there are a bunch of uh, English language English English literature corpora collections online. Uh, if there's if there's terminology, if there are turns of phrase that seem odd, they're not not easy to understand, or you think we understand them only because we've kind of institutionalized a given reading, go look them up. Go on Google Books and search for these things, and and you know uh, customize your search so it's only going to give you results from the first half of the 19th century or something like that. Find out how people were were using the terminology back then. I mean, that's an awful lot of work. Uh, but if if you're not willing to, to actually go do thorough uh, research like that, I would just say uh, question your, your reading. Think a little more carefully about why you're coming up with the interpretations that you're coming up with and how it how it serves you. And if there's something that, that bubbles to the surface as something particularly meaningful to you, interrogate that a little bit. Why is that meaningful to me? Is it possible this could mean something else? Uh, sometimes there are commentaries you can look in to see what people have said about this in the past. Uh, there's very little in our text that have only ever had one single consistent reading. There are Usually, there are different readings that have uh, that have been uh, offered uh, for the text. But one one of the things that um, a reader of the LDS scriptures is going to butt up against, especially with a subject like this, is the authority that the church gives to the prophet and church leadership, even on a local level, their bishop or their stake president. When the stake mm -hmm. president comes in and says, "This is my understanding of this X Y Z passage," and then Someone else coming to the table, you know, a, a regular member of the congregation, having read, maybe understanding a little bit better the historical context, or maybe better better understanding the way the words were used in the 1830s. They can't adequately express that because within, at least within the LDS framework, you're either not allowed to show any sort of dissent like that, or it's looked down upon to uh, correct someone or say, "Hey, look, you know, maybe we're understanding this wrong." Mm -hmm. How can someone, because I do, I do have a fair number of listeners that have left, they have no interest in ever coming back, but I have a lot that 
that they're trying to make it work. They're desperately trying to, to grapple with their testimony, their belief in the church or their belief in God and reconcile that with, with some of the distinctions they see with the way it's presented to them. What advice would you give to a listener like that? Um, I, I understand that people are in a lot of different types of circumstances. I was the gospel doctrine teacher last year and, uh, I got up there and shared some of the stuff from the, uh, come follow me manual that, uh, talked about how, you know, we need to contextualize a a lot of what's going on. We need to understand that these these were imperfect authors, you know, Latter-day Saints don't believe in inerrancy, at least I've never been told I needed to believe in (laughs) inerrancy. And so I, I feel bad that, that the, uh, the game of, of leadership roulette at whatever level you want to put it has put some people in positions where they don't feel safe or comfortable offering alternative readings. Uh, and I, I do what I can to try to advocate for being a lot more open and a lot more tolerant of that kind of thing, because I have only ever seen in my dealings with, uh, with church leadership on a local and other levels, I have only ever seen a willingness to listen to different perspectives. And, uh, and I know that is probably, um, unique, uh, that kind of experience, but I've, I've uh, always tried to turn in my Sunday school classes. I've always tried to turn the classroom into a safe space where people were safe to ask those questions. And, and I had a lot of people asking those questions and I appreciated it. I felt like it contributed to very helpful, constructive discussions. And I think there are a lot more people out there who would like to see that than are being vocal about it. Um, I think a lot of people when pushed would probably say they would, they would like to see that because if we're just going to, uh, if we all know what we're, what the scriptures are allowed to mean, and we're just going to class to just make sure that we can all repeat what the scriptures are allowed to mean, that's not a school. Um, and so I, I am doing what I can to try to, uh, to try to break down those walls of, of dogmatism about the scriptures and what they're allowed to mean. I know that uh, there are congregations where people are not comfortable doing that. And I don't know that I have a solution for those, those situations, um, but I, I hope that people will bring up those kinds of questions. And uh, I, I am certainly not the authority to turn to. I'm not the one to cite. So don't say this guy over here said I'm allowed to do this to a bishop because then I'm going to get <laughs> yeah. in trouble. Dan McClellan's <laughs> in the church. He said X, Y, Z. Yeah. Um, so I'm not, I'm not an authority figure in any sense whatsoever in that regard, but I would hope that, uh, that people would allow others to share their concerns because that's how we, we learn and grow. Um, and, uh, we're going to, we're going to be a lot more productive. We're going to become a lot more a lot more productive followers of Christ if we are allowed to follow the text where we think the the spirit is leading us, if that's how we're approaching the text. Awesome. I don't know that that's much in the way of, uh, of advice or counsel, but, um, but I support everybody out there who is, who is um, struggling with that. I think one of the reasons that many people respect you is your ability to separate your own beliefs from the data or, you know, it's the data over dogma and, and people see that with the way you present yourself and the way you present information, you have a a following that is both, you know, raging atheists all the way to the most devout believers. And (laughs) the, the way that you almost set your own personal convictions aside when you're grappling with the data, I think that is 
precisely why people listen to you. So you have my respect. You have the respect of so many other people out there. So Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for coming on. I know I didn't have you for too much time today. Maybe some sometime down the road, I'd love to bring you all, you back onto the show. Yeah, happy to. Is there any final thoughts on this sort of discussion that we had? Anything that you wanted to, to kind of wrap this up on? And we'll give one more shout out to your new podcast. Yeah, I, I think we uh, tagged all the all the bases. Uh, hopefully, you got answers for uh, all the questions that you asked. And um, yeah, I I hope that your listeners, whatever uh, side of uh, of this messy spectrum that they're on, <laughs> that they found something of some kind of utility to help them uh, either make the uh, the text more useful or more meaningful to them, whether in a, a believing or a non believing or an anti believing way. Uh, I think there's uh, the the scriptures, the Bible, um, restoration scripture, any kind of authoritative text uh, is inevitably a, a dynamic tool that is going to be put to all different kinds of use. And so, I think recognizing that that is the case can help us be a lot more a lot more honest about what we're doing with it. And and I think that's one of the I think the final thing I would say is it's not always about uh, what everybody else is doing wrong with the text. I think everybody should also spend a good portion of their time looking at what they're doing with the text that might be wrong. I do that every single day. Uh, I try to, at least. I'm not always successful, but uh, I think we would all be in a much better place if we were willing to interrogate our own assumptions and, and dogmas as well. Thank you so much for coming on, Dan. Thank you. Once again, the listeners, go make sure to subscribe to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Follow Dan wherever he's he's putting his scholarship out there. And again, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you, sir. I appreciate your time. Another big thanks to Dan McClellan for coming on to the podcast to discuss negotiating meaning and moral authority within the text of the scriptures, both within the Bible and the LDS canon of scriptures. Again, for the listeners, be sure to go subscribe to his new podcast, Data Over Dogma. Wherever you're finding this one, wherever you're streaming this right now, I'm sure you'll be able to find his podcast too. To quote Dan, I support this creator's rhetorical goals. <laughs> this was a pleasure. Again, thanks so much for coming on and having this discussion with me. I'll have to bring you on, back on the show down the road. So wherever you find yourself out there, listeners, inspired to go to your local comic book store and go and pick up Moon Girl and devil dinosaur or to get into a new hobby i hope that you have an excellent day <laughs>